Welcome to the Sea Press Podcast, a podcast from the Presbytery of Seattle that invites you into conversations about issues and topics that are meaningful to the church and its people. My name is Eliana Maxim, and I am the co-executive presbyter for the Presbytery. And with me are two friends slash colleagues, uh, Tally and Maggie, and would love for the two of you to introduce yourselves. <laughs> Tally's motioning to me to go first, so I will do that. Thank you, Tally. Um, I'm I'm the newbie here, although I've been around the Presbytery for a long time. I know many people um, having worked at St Andrew, but I just joined the Presbytery staff um, on a grant from Lily that folks will have heard about, and I'm just delighted about it. Um, so I'm joining. My official title is Community Education and Assessment Specialist. Um, so that means I'm going to be helping um, on this grant as we kind of learn together about what it looks like to thrive. Um, I'm an ordained uh, PCUSA pastor, so I'm a teaching elder, and I worked as the associate pastor at um, St. Andrew for a long time, doing kind of compassion, justice, and peace work. But my, um, my call has always been to kind of be working in the community, paying attention for what the Spirit's got to stay, say to us from community partners and um, community life. And so have worked, uh, while I was in Andrew, St Andrews, we formed a nonprofit there called REACH that um, worked to provide shelter. So I've been doing that. And then also most recently did some work at Seattle University, just learning a little bit more about how to do community-based work, which gives me great joy. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's me. I'll tell you more as, as we go on, but yeah. Hello, everybody. Tally Hairston. Um, excuse me, Reverend Tally Hairston. Yeah. <laughs> and I am Director of Advocacy, Organizing, and Development for the Seattle Presbytery and going on my third year here. I'm really excited about uh, now being able to bring some leadership to the Thriving Congregations Program, Seattle Presbytery. So, and we'll be talking about the Thriving Congregations Program in a little bit. Um, but I would be remiss in not starting our time together today to talk about what everything that's been going on around us, uh, particularly in our nation's capital, um, this last week. One of the struggles that that um, I know many of our ministers have encountered is how do I talk about uh, what we all witnessed last Wednesday um, happening at the, at the DC. And not just from the pulpit, which is always, you know, the first thing you think like, oh my gosh, how am I going to preach about this? And what does the lectionary passage say? And um, how do I make this fit into uh, a, maybe a series that I designed back in the fall? Um, but how do I talk to my congregation about what we are all seeing? particularly when you have certain pushback or um, maybe not pushbacks, but counter arguments about some of the things that we witnessed. And, and I'm wondering, um, Tally and, and Maggie, if those are some um, thoughts or experiences that you've had this past week in trying to make sense of what you saw and how to talk about it um, as a church leader with other Christian folks. Yeah, that's a great a great question, but also just uh, a really tough experience to be leading in divided times. You know, the the context or environment or the context um, of leadership is so important for leaders to consider. Right? We know, uh, you know, so many times we're taught in leadership programs about the content of good leadership, 
but the context in which you lead has a lot to do with what, what the content is. And so I'm reminded that Jesus did his most uh, damage physically to things when he goes into the temple, <laughs> not uh, when he's in the, in the uh, halls of the government. His power was directed, his anger and hostilities around the church were, is not how we should think about that. We actually should think about that possibly that the way Jesus thinks about change is that judgment begins at the house of God. And so if Christians are really serious about changing the world, think about changing the church first, right? Think about what the church is doing. And then secondly, I come to what we really um, know um, as a, a model of Christian witness is to approach everything through nonviolence, to really be a people that do more violence through nonviolence than we do through the use of physical violence and force. That we really show through nonviolence that we, our faith and our trust is in a God that is much bigger than any kingdom or any nation. Uh, and it's sad when Christians uh, take up uh, arms and carry something like a flag that says Jesus and march on any nation or any capital as if it somehow is a Christian witness. It is not a Christian witness. Christian witness is to be able to, to do that march in, in, in nonviolence, um, toward, pointed towards uh, um, making a show of the earthly powers, <laughs> making a show of them that God is ultimately who we trust for all things. And we hold these government and political and nation states lightly and that they are influenced by our nonviolence more than they are our violence. And in that way, we can, we can be at rest um, because our actions and our faith are guided by a God who says uh, that the, that the nonviolence that we live within is actually more damaging. <laughs> it's more effective. <laughs> it's more, it's, it's more obtrusive that when you met, when you, when you simply do what the civil rights marches did, which was really just to stop everything simply by walking in silence, walking in protest, refusing to participate in certain things, not, not raising violence. The violence was done to them, but the, viol the violence was not done by them. And I think we've gotta, we gotta kind of remember that uh, that is a teaching that, that has taught us a lot the last 60 years. And somehow we have, shamed, we have fallen away from what that really means. I could go on and on and on, but I think from the, just from you know, being an African-American Christian male leader, like I can't get away from the world nonviolence plays in changing the world. Yeah, I, I, I you know, as a, as a white leader in the church, I, I, I don't know. I just, it's been, it's been horrifying for such a long time. And I've, I've talked with lots of folks this, this week who I know have been working hard on these issues for a long time who've said well this isn't surprising this you know we hear lots of things about this is not who we are no this is who we are these are the dynamics at play in our world 
and at the same time the shocking nature just the kind of really shocking nature of what happened last week was is, is just kind of exhausting so completely expected this it makes sense and also to see at large how much violence and 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 vitriol there is was just I'm completely exhausted by it this week you know um and so I'm wondering as I I I love what you just said there Tally about context you know the context that we we live within and what I know is that my context is not broad enough right it's just it's just not broad enough and that as I try to wrestle with these ideas um I don't, I don't know enough as a, as, a, as a white leader and it's on me to find out more, right? To, to ask the right questions and to pursue them relentlessly. Like we do a lot of kind of talking about things topically, right? Something happened and we talk about it and it's really hard and then we, we stop, right? And it's still there and kind of in, in, the, in the water, but we're not engaging it relentlessly. And, and, and that's really, I think, something that I want to be thinking about more and more is what does it look like to relentlessly engage these questions to find the questions that need to be asked and to go after them you know and to talk to whoever we need to talk to to get the answers and not in a way and that requires like you know listening (laughs) right right not if if you're if I'm stating that I don't know then that means I need to go out and and be really curious and, and admit that I don't know and admit that in my lack of knowledge, I'm doing great harm, you know? Um, so what does it look like um, for the for churches that are uh, mostly white to expand their context in real ways? And that's hard work, but it needs to be done relentlessly, you know? Thanks, Maggie. Yeah. You know, one of the, I'm, I, you've seen it on social media and, and I certainly got a taste of it um, based on um, some things that I have, been writing and, and saying a counter argument or a blowback to uh, criticizing what happened uh, last Wednesday is how is how or how was that any different from the BLM protest mm-hmm. this past summer um, the rioting that we saw uh, at the national capital how is that different from the destruction that was done by certain by on certain businesses and um, and it's interesting because I think uh, some of that uh, rationalization or, or trying to come up with a counter argument to why that's not as bad as you're trying to paint it has actually come from the Christian community. Yeah. So, so how do you counter that? I know how I do it in my head, but how do you counter that argument when, when you have good-hearted Christian folk uh, I should I should make the caveat white Christian folk saying, well, yeah, that was bad, but so was BLM, uh, or so was uh, some of the other um, protests that we've seen um, against mm-hmm. the current administration. Yeah, I'd love to hear Eliana how you do that in your head. Yeah. <laughs> Did, you mean the edited version or the <laughs> right? Right. I, I, I do. I, I think I'm curious, too, as to how you manage that, because I, you know, in talking with leaders about this whole thing um, in different parts of our country, I think leaders are responding um, to that kind of what aboutism differently. You know, I as a child would have gotten you. I remember I got I got suspended from school. I know I, I did. And my dad, you know, my response to my dad was, 
but what about what so-and-so did, mm -hmm. right? And, and that was never a good answer to me being held accountable for my actions. And I think everyone needs to be accountable for their actions. Every group needs to be accountable for their actions. Um, and if your actions um, are violent or unjust or damaging to others, others' property, others, then, then be accountable to that. Um, be accountable to that. I, I think what about isms is really a product of our culture today, that our culture really struggles to be accountable for our behavior because the ends justify the means, right? We, we, we feel like the, 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 the justification for our behavior is justified, right? That we can do this behavior because we're preventing something more harmful. Uh, and that, that historically has proven to be problematic for not only individuals, but movements and countries and uh, communities and churches. Whenever we move into a space where we are simply trying to justify our behavior because of some other wrong that we're trying to speak to, it's extremely problematic. Um, what it does is, and I'll, I'll, I'll even use uh, an example from my own community. In working with gangs, when gangs reply, respond to shootings in their community by other gangs, they would justify it by saying, but they shot on us first. And working with gangs, we would always say, but the end, the end result is death. Mm -hmm. End result's not life. Mm -hmm. Right? So to, to, to use that as a tool to say, well, what happened at the Capitol um, is the same thing that happened in, in the summer and Black Lives Matter. Regardless of whether that's true or not, the actual act of doing that is that the outcome is still death. The outcome is still destruction. And if, if that's your end goal, okay. But the problem is for the country and for communities, there's an impact or consequence is that we're not living an abundant life at that level, we're still living into destruction and death. Yeah, and, and as I think about those two, I too, Tally, was like, yeah, I want to hear how you, <laughs> you, you know, because it's such a difficult question, but it, as I think about those two and how they're connected structurally, right, that's how I, I, how I want to kind of come at it, is that, you know, that those protests, the BLM protests in the summer and then the protests at the Capitol are connected structurally, right? And, and through the racial structures that we live within. Um, and and, and that, that's important, right? The, the structure, the, the, the response at the Capitol because, because there are elements of our country who can't stand the idea of those who have been oppressed over time being full equal, you know, members of our community, and that's 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 the structure that needs to be addressed. And and um, you know, and people were showing up over the summer because those structures were taking away lives. And we could get into kind of measuring which ones were more peaceful than the others. We could do that, sure. And I have opinions on them, but ultimately, this is a larger structure that's that's bringing both both of these things to life that that we need to deal with as a country. It's not going to go away until we do. Thank you. And I should say that um, part of my reason for asking you these questions is that our plan is to uh, begin hosting a monthly gathering for our uh, congregational pastors 
to discuss exactly this. How do we talk about difficult topics in, in the church? How do we make sense of them? How do we uh, contextualize them both theologically and culturally um, in, in the places that we're, we're placed. So okay. that's going to be coming up um, in, in the spring. But um, I also have to say that this past Sunday, I spent a significant amount of time, um, I guess some would, would call it trolling the internet, but um, dropping in um, different uh, congregations, both in our presbytery, as well as um, around the country trying to listen in on in various locations of what people were saying from the pulpit um, about what had happened and how did, how did they make sense of it. And, and my question to you both would be, what do you think happens in a congregation when the pulpit is silent about something like this that happened? What, what happens in a congregation when there are crickets yeah, um, it makes, I feel quite teary thinking about it, honestly, that, that when, a, when a congregation is connect, disconnected or doesn't hear its leadership connect the liturgy and the things that we do on a Sunday to what is happening in the world, then the church is misformed. You know, I, I think we're misformed as, as Christians if we are not connecting um, how we gather, how we sing, how we how we receive the bread to what's going on in the world. The two are the same, you know, um, our faith is a living faith. Um, and so I feel very strongly, and this is my own, that we have a, a responsibility of leaders of the church to, to ensure that we are, we're naming things that, that are happening in the world, and especially those things that, that we know people are coming in the door with, right? And, 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 if, and, and, and people want to... I remember um, when I first started kind of um, coming back to the church, you know, I left when I was like 19. I didn't, I just left. And, and when I first came to the back, one of the things that really caught me were the Psalms, the idea that you are allowed to bring your whole self into worship, right? That those Psalms allow you to lament and to wail and to cry and to, in the process, turn you back to hope. Um, you know, and those laments come from the, from the, the, the world that we live in um, the church is the place for that um, and I think we're misformed as as followers of Jesus if we're not connecting um, what we do on a Sunday to you know the, the way that we live and not just our daily lives but like the big big topics outside yeah that's good I mean I think the how pastors um and just be honest, seminary doesn't teach us this, right? Seminary doesn't prepare us to be able to speak to um, leading in these kind of spaces, how to prepare a sermon that speaks to these issues, right? It's like, wow. But it's not that seminary just doesn't do it. It's that we've been taught a way of interpreting scripture that weeds out how to actually have um, an, an exegetical approach that, that speaks to this. We just don't like, I'll give you an example, Luke 4, Jesus reads into the temple, reads the, reads the scripture to the temple and says, today the, the, the word has been fulfilled in your ears, um, setting the captive free sight to the blind. And they, the people clap, they love it. They're like, yay. <laughs> 
Then he goes on to say, right, well, such as some who did not receive their sight and some were not healed. He goes back and does a historical work of helping people to see where actually the presence of God was there, but not received by everybody. And they look at this and they go, oh, kill this guy. This is the worst, right? Oh, they went from, from singing his praises to where Jesus has to escape. Okay, that's Luke 4, right? And, and we're, we're kind of taught to, to teach the first part, <laughs> right? Jesus is this powerful. On the conservative side, Jesus is powerful. And the liberal side, set the captive free. But we don't get to that second half where everybody kind of gets skewered. And, and the, the, the way in which I think about this is that the violence that's done by, let's say, conservative circles, the violence done by liberal circles, the violence done by police, the violence done um, by men who simply don't care about the plight of women and children, the all of that violence is, is violence. It, there's no favored violence, right? <laughs> and what Jesus is speaking to in that moment that makes everyone angry is that until you learn that your liberation and your success is bound up in those who are not receiving opportunity and freedom, you too are left out. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing we, where we go to change the, the text. We want to change the scripture at that point, or we simply don't preach that. So it's, it's really having an exegetical perspective that helps us bring the text to the forefront of these challenges. Because if one thinks that socialism's violence is somehow ontologically different from capitalist violence, no, capitalist violence just may happen in another country. It's, it's the work that militarism does in other countries and economically does in other countries to impoverish other nations. Socialism's violence may happen here in our own country. Regardless, it's still violence. <laughs> and the work of the church is not to sanctify capitalism or socialism. The work of the church is to do what Jesus did in the second part of that text, which is to go, and some of you, unless you're bound up in the liberation of others, you too may not experience the glory of God. I think that's a, a, a really wonderful and, and actually beautifully said way of, of naming what my challenge is when I hear silence coming from the pulpit is that I, I feel like somehow or another, the congregation is getting shortchanged from the fullness of who Christ is and who Christ is for us. In our enamored way of, of embracing Christianity, of the shepherd Jesus or uh, the baby Jesus in the manger or Jesus feeding people, our inability to also see the Jesus who gets angry and the Jesus who uh, convicts us and who turns around and, and refers to people as a den of vipers or um, is, is able to express rage against, against woundedness that good intention people make. I feel like we don't get the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus and also the kind of work that we need to do on ourselves to be transformed. Right. And it's, we're missing out on that fuel for the journey, right? Unless we explore all of that, we can't, we can't engage the work. We don't, you know, unless we get that full picture. So 
we're we're shortchanging people in a way that affects our liberation, right? You know, that's 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 huge. I think. I guess this is a way for me to segue into the into the work that the two of you were. We are so blessed as a presbytery to um, first to, uh, have both of you on staff, but secondly to ha- get um, this Lilly grant to do this work around thriving congregations. And it makes me think about what is a thriving congregation. It's one that embraces the reality, the truthfulness of who they are and who Christ is for them. Can you um, just briefly tell us a little bit about what is this work and what are some of the relevant or salient points, particularly in this time frame that we're living in right now, why it makes sense to embark on this kind of work? Yeah, and you know, this has been such a, um, a wonderful journey in the midst of this space is spending the last two years learning from what our congregations were doing, realizing that uh, there was a, a kind of obvious problem of churches declining, uh, not just within the presbytery, but we, we were looking at different denominations and non-denominations going, there's just this consistent trend over 20 years and, and then the, the, the grace of being able to work with uh, Reverend Maggie on thinking through what might a solution look like, not in terms of uh, like, we're gonna fix it, but in terms of a process that the churches could engage that would help um, speak to how to become learning and adaptive congregations um, in light of the divisiveness and cultural malaise that we find ourselves in, what would be a way in which a congregation could spend time in, in, in kind of inculcating a process into itself that would make it a place that could learn and adapt to cultural changes? Um, and, and in that way, when we sat down to write this and we read the research and we, we looked at what our con- pilot, con- we call them pilot congregations that we're doing that we're trying to be on the leading edge of some of this and we, we brought them together. Um, this is what we came out with and we're very grateful that Lily Endowment agreed that our, our plan and the Seattle Presbytery was a good place to do this work um, in the Pacific Northwest. And we're really excited about the the reality that congregations will have an opportunity to spend dedicated time and having the resources to support them in creating dedicated space to to learning a part of a cohort, a part of a community of congregations that are all thinking about how to turn the tide, uh, how to, to really become learning and adaptive congregations. I'm really excited, Eliana, about the part of this that you know the research has shown that um learning takes community right it's kind of an it's an old knowing but um we learn in community and 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 learning that's liberative needs to be done in community right it can't be done without the voices of those who who know their issues best um and that sometimes our learning has been guilty of like dreaming up solutions and imposing them, right? Rather than involving those that are actually affected. So there's that part of being together. And there's also the fact that to do this type of work, um, it takes time and it takes commitment and you need companions on the way. You need to be um, asking each other questions and keeping each other kind of accountable to the process. And then you need those communities on an ongoing basis because this is adaptive work and we're hoping to show people a way to start thinking about how to adapt to your community. This work will go on, 
right? This is not kind of a one and done. You need, we, we wanna be able to form communities that are ready for the next thing. And those things come up constantly and they should come up constantly. And so what does it look like to form communities with Presbytery where we can help each other to learn and, and learn how to adapt and then help a congregation be in deep and real community with their own in their own context so that this work can continue um, and that part to me is just so important because I think we've we've often made such I think a mistake sometimes in the way that we learn together right that we want to kind of get a solution and and get the model and then you know we'll do that and things will be okay and that's just now it's not served us very well um, and so this is this is a different approach where we're we're coming together to learn together about what the local community needs, what the congregation needs and wants. Yeah. And to do so rooted in their faith commitments. Yeah. We're not, we're not asking that adaptive piece to be about changing their, their faith commitments, but rather we're going to do it through the faith commitments, right? right? right. Because the adaptivity is connected to the social and cultural world context in which they're leading. Um, and that's, that's to, to me, that's just been something we've seen, not just here in our own country, but in our work in Berenquia, Colombia, Eliana, that you've led us in, we've seen the same kind of um, work going on there. Yeah. Well, I know I'm not the only one who's excited about embarking on this, on this journey. Um, I know so many of our congregations in the Presbytery are anxious to, um, to submit their proposals to be a part of this cohort group. And and if for anyone who's listening, who's interested in more information, be sure to check out the Seattle Presbytery website, uh, cpress.org. And there's a page there dedicated just to this program and you can read more about it. We'll be checking in often uh, through this podcast as well as to what the work is looking like and what you're learning um, and, um, and things that you can share with us. I want to thank you both so much for your time today. I know it's, it's a busy season and um, it's good to connect. It is. Thank you so much. Yeah, Maggie, fun. welcome, welcome. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I can't tell you, it's so rich. So um, thank you for having me and yeah. It's, it's nice to have someone else with an accent. Yes, yes. That's <laughs> good enough. Okay, I got it. <laughs> All right, friends, be well. And um, until the next time, uh, this is uh, Eliana Maxim and Tally Hairston and Maggie Breen with the Seapred Podcast. Bye.